Okay, if you need a lesson, raise your hand. We've got some. This is a two-part lesson. Uh, it's a little bit longer than we'd be able to cover this morning. So it's going to be this week and next week. I'll try to make sure we bring extra copies next week. And I may supplement a little bit. One of the people who reviewed the lesson for me sent me an email back that says, okay, thank you, but you've shortchanged a little bit on the Amish and the Anabaptists and the Mennonites and the Moriarty, I mean the Hutterites, and <laughs> the Brethren. So I will flesh them out a little bit. We've gotten to the point in this class where we're seeing branches that come off of the tree, if you will, in church history. And what we're going to do is instead of just going for, for years, you know, for decades, no, for centuries, the church has basically been uh, maybe two, if you will, but, but in a sense, one Catholic church, one united church. But as the splits happen, some of those splits, we're going to go ahead and just take all the way to the tip of the branch. And then we'll get back to the tree. In other words, I don't want to, when we hit the 1700s, say, okay, now here's what's happening in the Amish movement in the 1700s. Here's what's happening. It'd be too disjointed. So this class is two weeks, this week and next week. And it'll be easy to fit in next week if you miss this week because we have a lot of people who are out for spring break. But the goal is, is to take the class and go ahead and bring it up to today. And so we'll be looking at the Amish. We'll be looking at the Brethren. We'll be looking at the Hutterites and the Mennonites uh, up through today, uh, uh, next week especially. I don't think we'll get to that part this week. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that's very important for me to do, though, is to keep the flow of this so that if you were studying world history... Okay, we've got a 16 and a 17-year-old here. What year do y'all do world history? You're doing world history right now? Okay. If you're studying world history, this class ought to be able to phase in. This shouldn't be... Church history, especially in Western civilization, is not apart from the rest of history. It's part of history. It's what's defined Western civilization more so than anything else. And so this plugs in, and that means that what we need to do is we need to consider this as we go through the class. So if we consider, for example, the Dark Ages, which is what the Middle Ages are frequently called, uh, Dark Ages because civilization and intellect and commerce, uh, literacy, uh, architect, the... the Society was not making progress during this time. It was actually receding. Uh, the, 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 some of the building secrets of Greece and Rome, uh, uh, especially the Roman architecture secrets, are gone during this period of time. Uh, uh, they, they don't know how to make the cement that used to be made during Rome. We think of society as progressing. Today we have medical things that help baby Tyson live that 30 years ago couldn't be done. But yet 30 years ago, there were medical advances that 30 years previously weren't there. I've got, uh, uh, I like to collect cookbooks. Okay, it may seem goofy, but everybody needs to do something goofy. And that's one of the many goofy things I do. Um, I have a cookbook from the mid-1850s. That's not just how to cook, but it's all about food and, and how to process squirrel meat and how to render fat from animals so that some you fry with and the other you save to use to make your soap. And it's real fascinating what they think was healthy and good and useful then that today we look at and say, ugh, you know, that, that's horrendous, you know. And, and, and we see civilization progressing, and that's our mentality. But for a thousand years, it wasn't progressing, it was degressing. People weren't growing in knowledge, they were shrinking in knowledge. That changes, and the change is what we call the rebirth 
or the Renaissance, or if you're from, we've got Angus from Scotland. I don't know how y'all say that in Scotland, Angus. How do you say it? Renaissance. Renaissance. I heard some guy on some video recently talking about the Renaissance, and I thought, I wonder if that's anything like the Renaissance. Um, <clears throat> turns out they're the same things. Um, anyway, as we look at it and we can see, we see the way society is progressing and civilization is. And one of the ways to see it, for example, you can look at, if we could bring the lights down a little bit. This is a painting that's a Dark Ages painting. And I promised that we'd look at the history of architecture and painting in this class, and I've just let you all down. We haven't done it yet, but I hope still to at some point in time. But, but back in the Dark Ages, when people did paintings, what they would do is, is they would paint, and what's big is what's important in the painting. What's little is what's not important. But the paintings are two-dimensional. That's just a flat painting. And you can see Mary and the baby Jesus. That's the important focus point of it because that's what's biggest and commands the center of the painting. Then on the side, you can see the angels, which are giving adoration to Mary and giving adoration to Jesus. They're also important. Then down below, you've got the apostles who are of lesser importance. But you see how it's a real two-dimensional painting? It's just flat. Everything's together. If you go into the Renaissance, that starts to change. Uh, there was a guy named Filippo uh, uh, Brunelleschi who was famous because he was the guy who finally figured out how to get a dome on top of the big church in, uh, in uh, Florence for a uh, hundred years plus. There had been no dome. They built the church, but nobody could figure out how to build a freestanding dome over it. That knowledge existed back in Roman times, but in the 1400s it didn't. In the 1300s it didn't. And Filippo uh, uh, comes in and he says, well, let's figure it out. He goes back and tries to refigure out how to make cement because those formulas had been lost. Well, this same guy, um, Brunelleschi, comes and, and he does this thing where he adds three-dimensional sight into paintings. Perspective is what it's called. And so, for example, when he's pitching a church that he wants to build, he does a drawing, and you see the depth in that? How, how the, the, the things further away get smaller. And, and he had this experiment he did that's famous that we'll talk about maybe another time when we've got more time. But I've got a picture of the actual church that got built. And you see the depth. You see how accurate. This was brand new. This guy was revolutionary. He also had major attitude problems, but that's for another story. Um, <clears throat> so these types of changes start happening in the 1400s. Brunelleschi is in the 1400s when art just starts radically changing. Because all of a sudden you've got perspective. You've got depth. And, and, you, and some realism starts coming in. Architecture starts changing. There is a rebirth. There is a renaissance. Not only that, but in 1450, Gutenberg invents a printing press. And now all of a sudden, books don't have to be hand-copied letter by letter, page by page, which makes them so valuable that hardly anybody ever sees one, much less owns one. Instead, they can be mass-produced. There was no reason for a thousand years for you to learn how to read and write because you didn't have anything to read. 
So yeah, nobody knows how to read. Reading and writing is a lost thing unless you're involved in the church, basically. Um, and in the church, even there, the reading and writing is de minimis. And it's in Latin, generally. There are a few educated people who get it, but most people don't. And so books now, all of a sudden, as of 1450 and tracks, they start coming out. And they start coming out in bulk. And the price starts coming down. And the affordability starts growing. And all of a sudden, it becomes more proper to learn how to read. And literacy increases. And people start questioning things. Because once you start learning, you want to learn more. And the inquisitive part of your brain starts functioning. And so you start thinking. And so you've got guys like Christopher Columbus who come along and start trying to convince governments to back his trip because he thinks he can prove what some of the scientists believe, and that is that the world is round. Not all believe it. And there's a strong bit of the church that teaches against that at this time. There's a strong bit of the church that, that made Galileo recant because Galileo had the audacity to suggest, based upon his experiments with a telescope and his observations, that maybe the sun's the center of our solar system and the earth revolves around it. And the church said no, because scripture says the sun rises and the sun sets. So the sun's doing the moving, the earth is in the center. The church had a very limited vision of the way God's scripture was written. And didn't understand some aspects of it. But as a result, Columbus, he sails, and what happens? He discovers a new world. There is a whole bunch of new people new races, if you will, in lands we've never heard of, dreamed of, mapped. This world is bigger than we ever dreamed. And all of a sudden, questions and issues and this, this whole gamut of information starts flooding the people. And, and people start asking questions. And they question the world. You know, well, what about all those people over there? They don't even have Christianity. Have they all been going to hell? Do they threaten us? Do we threaten them? The whole worldview has changed. Not just the world, but architecture. The way we build, the way we put things together. Those are being questioned. A guy named Leonardo da Vinci, he's even envisioning flying machines, helicopters, and drawing them out. And people start questioning even the church. Because the church doesn't seem to be hitting on all cylinders on these points. And so people, now they're able to read, right? For a thousand years. Can you imagine if or, uh, for going back ten generations or twenty generations in your family if there had not been one person who had ever read the Bible? For 20 generations, you may have never met anyone who read the Bible. When Martin Luther first started reading the Bible, he had to go to his monastery to check it out because there was only one in the monastery. Most people, you want to know what the Bible says? Well, it wasn't really what about the Bible says. It was about, here's the church, they tell you what to do. And that's the way generation after generation after generation have been living. But now it got to a point where people could compare. Here's what the church says. 
But here's what I read in my Bible. And things radically change. And as we discussed the last few weeks, a fellow named Martin Luther takes 95 debate points, points of contention he has with the church, and he nails them on October 31st, 1517, to the church door at Wittenberg, which is the bulletin board, if you will. Now, if we continue to understand this in perspective, um, this is Europe. I, I take a map of Europe and throw it up here for you. And at the time, we've got France and we've got the Holy Roman Empire. And France was loaded with the Catholics who during that 13 to 1400 period, when there was a split in the Catholic Church among whether the Pope and, and, and uh, uh, Catholicism is centered in Avignon, France, or whether it belongs in Italy, in Rome, or someplace close to Rome. And the Catholics that were loyal to Avignon are the, those in France. Those in what's still called the Holy Roman Empire, what we think of as Germany, are the ones who are loyal to Rome. And you have a split Catholic church until 1417, when the Council of Constance finally brings it back together and says, no more this two or three pope system will reunite under one pope. That's also where John Huss got killed, burned, martyred. But uh, you've got in Germany, or the Holy Roman Empire, you've got the Catholics loyal. Now the purple at the edge of the map, those are the Eastern Orthodox who, bless their hearts, we've been ignoring for about five months, but we'll get back to them one day, I hope. In comes Luther into this divided world. And Luther comes in, and if we bring our map forward to Luther's time, you've got the Holy Roman Empire here, you've got France... Uh, you've got uh, Spain down here, but uh, you've got little different elected areas within the Holy Roman Empire that all vote together on who's going to be the emperor. You've got Bohemia, Moravia, and, and other places. Um, in the realm of this, in comes Luther. And Luther nails his theses to the door up here in Wittenberg. Not only that, Luther gets in trouble at the Edict of Worms. We talked about that. 1521. This is the Luther area. This is the part that has followed Luther by and large. Kind of dilutes down by the time you get to Worms, Worms, whatever you want to call it. Um, but up in Wittenberg, it's really strong. The Lutherans have really caught hold there. And the Catholic Church strength from down here in Rome is really weak when you get that high, that far north. Now we're going to shift attention and we're going a little bit further south into Zurich, what is now Switzerland. Zurich. In Zurich, a reformation, a reforming of the church is occurring at the same time that Luther's doing his thing up further north. Scott filled in for me on this class, but we had a class on Ulrich Zwingli. And Zwingli is leading the reforming of the church in Switzerland area, specifically in Zurich. There's another guy in a decade who's going to be a big-time dog doing it over in Geneva. His name is John Calvin. Okay? But Ulrich Zwingli is doing this in Zurich, Switzerland. Now, let me tell you about him or remind you about him if you, if you haven't, don't remember the class from Scott. He was actually a city leader as well as a church leader. He was, he was one of the, the civic leaders, one of the Lord High Muckety Mucks around town. He was a Protestant scholar at this point. Uh, he started out Catholic, but he is a, a, a Protestant scholar as we're looking at him. Um, he's very different than Luther in some ways. 
let me explain what I've put up here. I've, I've put in the PowerPoint covenant versus contract. Here's the distinction that we need to make. Um, for Martin Luther, God's relationship with us was a covenant. And by that, Luther meant this. God has made promises, redemptive promises, promises to redeem, promises to save. God's promises are not based upon how well we respond. It's not based on our works. It's based on God's character and God's promise. And it is there, and it is there for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Okay? Zwingli, he, he doesn't really see it that way. He sees it more like a legal contract. God says, you do your part, I'll do my part. You don't do your part, then I don't have to do my part. And it's much more of a legal contract type situation. Um, uh, Zwingli is also a guy who's a Bible translator. Um, he's translated the Bible into his local German, and, and he's got his thing going along. I think the guy, as I read him, he says, uh, you know, I was never influenced by Luther in anything I did. It's just a mere coincidence I did everything two years after him. Um, uh-huh. Anyway, I'm not a big Zwingli fan, though he's a huge guy, and if his relatives are listening to this 500 years later, then sorry. <laughs> But uh, Zwingli and Luther, they're kind of contemporaries. In fact, they meet at one point. They fall apart over, over the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper, so it, it doesn't work. Um, but Zwingli grabs some students that come to him. And he gets the young, the impressionable, the energetic, young college-age people. And he says, come with me and let me teach you. So some of the smarter kids around town graduated, and instead of going to a university or something, they come study at the feet of Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli teaches them Greek, and he teaches them Latin. And do you know what he uses as his textbooks? The New Testament. Or the Bible, actually. Old and New. Vulgate and Septuagint. So Zwingli teaches them, and they become converted. And, and all of a sudden, they've got these Bibles, and it's a really cool thing. And this is how they've learned to read uh, uh, the language, the, the foreign language. But times then were not much different than they are now in terms of the propensity of students. Let me say that a little less lawyerly. It's really not much different now than it was then on the way students dealt with their teachers and their teachers' ideas. You know, you can take a teacher and a teacher may say, okay, I want to make this point. And the teacher makes the point, makes the, the principle, makes the idea. And then the students come. Have you seen this? Maybe you experienced, maybe you were one. And they take the principles of their teachers, but they take them to the logical extreme. They always seem to take them and take them a little bit further. The students come along and they take that same idea but they take it to its fullest extent. Because sometimes teachers just go a little bit. And the students look at it and say, well, I agree, but you stopped before the finish line. Let's go the whole way. And that happened with Zwingli. Zwingli would say, let's just use the Bible to establish our doctrine and our practice. Let's don't use church tradition. Let's use simply Scripture. 
And then the students came along and said, yes, let's use Simply Scripture. But Zwingli, you're just applying that in a small area. Let's apply it to every practice in the church. If the Bible says it, we'll do it. If the Bible does not say it, we will not do it. If the Bible says it, or if the Bible shows it by an example, we'll follow. But if there's no statement, no example, we won't do it. An example of this. Some of the students, one in particular, writes a letter urging the churches to stop singing. says, I don't know if you're singing because you are uh, still influenced a little bit by Catholicism or maybe that Luther fella has infiltrated your midst because he's got them up there singing all these hopping German songs. You know, a mighty fortress is our God. Someone said that Luther attracted more. It was a Catholic fella who said, our biggest problem with Luther are these songs. There are more people that want to go to the Lutheran church just because the music's so good than anything else. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that, 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 that was that. So anyway, so this guy, one of the students of Zwingli, writes and says, stop singing. There's no basis in the New Testament for singing. Now, you're sitting there saying, well, if you're a good Church of Christ student, at least, you're sitting there saying, yes, there is. There's Ephesians 5.17 and Colossians 3.16, which say to sing and make merry to the Lord because it's what the churches of Christ have historically used to say there's no basis for instruments. It just talks of singing. But those are the very two passages of Scripture that Zwingli's student used. Because Zwingli students said, you go to the Ephesians passage, you go to the Colossians passage, and it says to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. To speak, not to sing. And then it says to sing and make melody in your heart. So these students are saying, don't sing out loud. You speak, you don't sing. You sing only in your heart. To do otherwise is to go beyond the bounds of Scripture. Now, one of the ways that these things were being handled at this time in this area of Switzerland was by public debate. They would, they would have these public debates where the audience would come. This is like early reality TV. Okay. Audience comes. There are judges. You may be thinking... Ah, what boring reality TV. Oh, no. Because ultimately, these are the ones that get people killed. So, I mean, it's got like gratuitous violence. It's got everything all rolled into it. They have these 1523 big public debate. And the first day they start debating the Mass. Is the Mass a time where Jesus bodily descends into the bread and into the cup? No. Okay, well, is it merely symbolic? Or is it done by the words of the priest or is it done by the faith of the participants? These are the issues being discussed. And ultimately, the decision is made that the Mass is not being conducted biblically when it's being conducted the way it was at that time within the church. But Zwingli wouldn't change. He had no offense here, Debbie Riddle. He had a politician's sensitivity toward not ruffling feathers 
And I don't mean it offensively. Because there are times to move and there are times to be patient because movement comes later. You know, I, I talked to, I don't remember if it was Debbie or someone else, and I said to him, I said, I hate this bill that's in Austin. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Can't you stop it? Throw yourself in front of the train. And the response was, I throw myself in front of the train. I'm dead. I'm of no use to you. The bill has too much momentum. But I promise you, I can be on the train and put my foot out and drag it and try to slow it down to where someone can jump in front of it. I thought, okay, that's political sensitivity. To give Zwingli his due, Zwingli said, okay, I agree with you privately on this, but practically speaking, we can't enact it right now. The students were not so patient. The students continued, and you want to know the straw that broke the camel's back for the students. That one straw that was finally too much was when they started looking at the Bible on infant baptism. On infant baptism, the students had some serious concerns because they weren't seeing it in Scripture. So on January 21st, 1525, just a week, actually less than a week, after the official word has been handed out that infant baptism is a requirement and everyone in our canton and everyone in our region must be baptized as an infant, must have their infants baptized. It's how they're placed on the tax rolls. It's how they're listed as a citizen. It's how they're listed for military service. It's their social security number equivalent. Every infant is required and that is it. The debate is over. That is the answer to this publicly debated issue. That a dozen or so men on January 21st met in the home of Felix Manns. One of them, a fellow named George Bluecoat, says, uh, actually his name was George Blaurock, but that's like, local dialect for blue coat because someone said to him one time who's the guy who's talking they said his name's George he's that guy in the blue coat <laughs> honestly so history's recorded his name he's George blue coat or blow rock so old George blue coat says at the home of Felix Mann January 21st 1525 with a dozen men together I'm an adult I have faith in Jesus Christ baptize me He's baptized. He's baptized, and uh, after he's baptized, all the other men are too. And these are the young guys. These are some of the key students of Zwingli who are now in open rebellion. But they want to be baptized as believers who have made a choice to follow the command of Jesus Christ to be baptized. They're not looking to reform the church. They don't want to take the church that's there and try to fix problems within it. They want to go back to the New Testament and restore the church. They want a New Testament church. They want a church that's built off of the New Testament and what it says alone. They want to go back to scratch. They were not warmly received. It's interesting to me, just as the Catholics were persecuting the Protestant Lutherans, trying to kill Martin Luther at this time, where there were Protestants in control of the government, like Zwingli, and there's a restoration movement or a reformation within that, 
the Protestants are just as quick to try and kill the other Protestants. Okay. Um, ultimately, Felix Manns uh, uh, himself is killed. Uh, he's drowned uh, uh, purposefully, January 15, 1527, in, which is, by the way, very cold in Switzerland. And they decide that the, the governing authorities that, that kill him for his faith kill him because of his refusal to recant about his baptism. And they say, okay, fine, you want a second baptism? You know, second is Anna. It's another. We get another from it. A-N-A. -A. Another. You want your another baptism? You're an Anna Baptist? You're a rebaptizer? We'll give you a third baptism. But we're going to do it with your hands tied behind your back in chains, a stick between your legs, and your feet tied together so you can't swim. You will be totally tied together and dumped in the middle of the frigid river in the middle of January. This is not a baptism you'll be coming up from. And they drowned him. Uh, they made it a crime to, to, to be uh, rebaptized. They passed an edict. Meanwhile, the Anabaptists, these people who started out with a dozen, they start growing. Whoops. And there are more and more. They're going house to house. They're knocking on doors. We've got a Bible. Let me open it up. Let me show you what it says. Let me show you what it says about baptism. Let me show you what it says about this. They are the first door-to-door -door house knockers in the church. And they're doing it. First that I know of. I don't know, there may have been others. But they're the first ones history records with the door-to-door -door evangelism. Hi. Can we share with you what God has done in our lives? And that, that we have a Bible. You can actually look at it. You may not be able to read it. We'll read it for you. Let us show you what it says. And, and, and there are hundreds, hundreds getting baptized at once, even though it's illegal to do. Well, now we fast forward, for example, to a fellow named Michael Sattler. Michael Sattler had been a Catholic priest, who, a monk, uh, who had left his monastery and moved from Germany over into this area. There had been an absence of leadership since the big guys in the Anabaptist movement were all martyred for their faith or locked up and imprisoned. They'd torture them. They'd put them on the rack and try to pull them apart. I mean, it's, it's dramatic to read these stories. And one of them, just as dramatic as Michael Sattler. Michael Sattler sat down with some friends and they put together what's been called the Schleitheim Articles. And these were, were, were seven articles of faith that were adopted by these people in this home. And they said, these are articles that we'll stand by as a religious group. This is what we'll do. We will baptize only those who make an adult and voluntary confession of faith in Jesus Christ, not infants. We're not baptizing our children, even though it's an act of treason and rebellion. We're only baptizing those who are adults who understand what repentance is because repentance is a necessary aspect of baptism. And so they did that. We will adopt the ban. You know what the ban is to keep order among fellow believers? Let's put it this way. The old way of making sure you were orthodox and not a heretic was you do heresy, we kill you. We just burn you or drown you. You get out of line with church doctrine, you get killed. Instead, what they said is, you get out of line with church doctrine or practice, we will disfellowship you. That's the biblical answer, they said. We will ban you from the church fellowship. We don't do it to destroy you. 
We do it so that you accept God's mercy and you come back into favor and into fellowship with the church. He said, number three, we're going to conduct our communion in memory of Christ, not as some sacramental mass that says Jesus has descended into the elements and offers you salvation as you take of his body. They said, we will see that our church is administered separate from the power of the state. We're not trying. See, even Luther, Luther takes his church and reforms it has a reformed church, a Lutheran church, but it becomes a governmental church. Zwingli is Reformation, but he's running the city council. The Anabaptists are saying, we're not out to make ours political. Ours will be simply a church. We'll have our congregations choose their own leaders rather than the leaders be chosen for them. We will reject the sword as outside the perfection of Christ. By that they meant we're going to be pacifists. We don't kill. And finally, we're not going to swear any oaths of loyalty. In a court of law, if they were asked, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you? God, their response would be, no. But I will affirm that I will speak the truth, but I will not take an oath because I'm not going to do that. Sadler, as soon as they sign all of this and everybody agrees to it, he gets arrested. There was a bust. And he's arrested and he's charged, depending upon how you read it, with eight or nine different counts. There are different accounts of this. But uh, his first charge, he was charged with acting contrary to the imperial mandate. The imperial mandate said, in essence, you can't go start new churches. You have to honor the word of God. The imperial mandate was actually written as a basis for arresting Luther. And so uh, Sattler responds to his trial and says, you know, that's about Luther, but don't worry about it. I honor the Word of God. I haven't done anything contrary to the Word of God. I, I've done it contrary to the tradition of the church. But you show me where in the Word of God I've done something contrary, and I'll change it. Charge 2. You're teaching that Christ's body was not present in the Eucharist. His response, well, it's not. And he shows the Scripture that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And when God, Christ, comes again, He's coming again to judge the quick and the dead. He says, how can Jesus be present in the elements if He's seated at the right hand of God? If He's left the right hand of God to come down, it's not to be in the elements, it's to judge the quick and the dead. That hadn't happened yet. He's got to still be up there. Charge number three. You've been teaching infant baptism doesn't save. His response, it doesn't. Romans 1.17 says that, that, that we live by faith alone. He says, Mark 16, 16, actually it starts in 15, where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to him who believes and is baptized, he'll be saved. But he says, that connects baptism with belief. Infants don't have belief. That invalidates baptism, inf- the idea of infant baptism. He says, 1 Peter 3.21 Peter writes, the waters of baptism now save you in the same way water saved Noah. Not by washing you clean with some ritual wash, but by the appeal to God of a clear conscience. How can an infant be appealing to God for a clear conscience? It's his response. Charge number four. You've rejected the oil of unction, the administration of oil for for healing or, or especially the last rites. His response was, oh no, God made oil. I'm all for oil. It's a real good thing. 
But the church hasn't improved on God's creation. Just because the pope or a priest blesses the oil doesn't all of a sudden make it a better oil than it was when God made it. Charge number five. You've insulted Mary, the mother of Jesus, and you've insulted the saints. His response, no. Mary is most blessed among all women, and we bless her and we honor her. But she's not our mediator between us and God. She's not our advocate before God. Jesus Christ is our mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5. He is our advocate before God. Nobody else. And as for the saints, all Christians are saints. Look at the way Paul writes Romans. He writes it to the saints. 1 Corinthians, to the saints. Ephesians, to the saints. If you're saved, you're a saint. Charge number six, you won't take an oath. That includes an oath of loyalty to the state. The response is, you bet, because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 34, don't swear. Just let your yes be yes and let your no be no. But you can go to the bank on whether I say yes or no, because I won't lie. It doesn't make me, it's not like, gee, I'm going to take an oath. Now I have to tell the truth. Before I could lie. But once you say oath, oh, I better tell the truth. You know, I've... I, I don't have time for this. There's a great lawyer story on that. <laughs> um, charge number seven, you married after you took the oath of a monk. He said, you bet. And in 1 Timothy 4.3, Paul says in the latter days that, that, that there'll be those who abandon the faith who teach people not to marry. But marriage is something that's holy and right in God's eyes and there's no problem with it. Charge number eight, You've told people if the Turks invade, not to fight the Turks. His response, yeah, Matthew 5.21 says, don't kill. But I will tell you this, if I was willing to pick up the sword, I'd sooner fight the so-called Christians who are killing other Christians. Because they're Turks at heart. Well, the response was guilty. And they proceeded to take him. And it's worth one moment for me to read you the eyewitness account of what happened. In the case of the attorney of His Imperial Majesty versus Michael Sattler, judgment is passed that Michael Sattler shall be delivered to the executioner who shall lead him to the place of execution and cut out his tongue. Which, by the way, they did, but they didn't get it all. So he was able to continue to pray to God for his persecutors after they cut out his tongue which he did right to the very end. The executioner will then lead him to the place of execution, cut out his tongue, then tie him to a wagon. And thereon, with red-hot tongues, twice tear pieces from his body. And after that, he'll be brought outside the gate, and he will be plied five times more in the same manner. means the tongues take out five more hunks of his flesh, the red-hot burning tongue. After this has been done in the manner prescribed, he will be burned to ashes as a heretic. And that's what happened, along with several others. His wife, they tried to talk out of doing things. She wouldn't agree, so they just drowned her. Coming next week, we're going to finish the talk of this 16th century Anabaptist movement. We're going to discuss Mennonites. We're going to discuss 
Michael Moriarty and the Heterites. We're going to discuss the Amish. We're going to discuss the Brethren. But now here are our points for home. We really need to discern the difference between matters of faith and matters of opinion. There are some things that are worth fighting over in the church. Purity is important on things. You know, Paul says in Galatians 1.8, If we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which you've received, let him be eternally condemned. And there was no hedging on that for Paul. Of course, the gospel for Paul wasn't this big long list. It was that Jesus Christ died, was buried, crucified, and resurrected on behalf of our sins. And if anyone ever teaches your salvation comes from anything other than that, then they don't belong in the church and they should be eternally condemned. That's what Paul's saying. By the same token, the same Paul says in Romans 14 to accept the people whose faith is weak without passing judgment on them. Disputable matters. Whether to eat this or whether to eat that or whether to honor this day or whether to honor that day. Paul says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? Next point for home. Warring in the church. I read all of this stuff. I read all this stuff. I read all this stuff. Catholics killing Protestants. Protestants killing Protestants. Zwingli winds up dying because he's going to war against the Catholics. I don't know if Scott covered that or not. But you just read all of this and you just say, did anybody read the passage, Blessed are the peacemakers, or they'll be called sons of God? I want to be a peacemaker. I really want to be a peacemaker. I want to find some way to make people get along. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul writes that in Ephesians, and the reason why is because we see this stuff going on in the church, but we're fooling ourselves if we don't see that the real struggle is coming someplace else. Satan is at work to destroy the body of Christ, and it's no less true in our day, though he does it in different ways. And our final point for home is on baptism because Jesus and the apostles did preach baptism and it's something that we should discuss and it's something that should be studied and it's something that should be respected and honored. Jesus said to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. What does that mean? What should be our response? What is baptism? Um, Another passage. Uh, Acts 2.38, in 2.37, the the people have been convicted that they've killed the Son of God and they cry out to Peter, what should we do? And Peter's response is to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for or unto the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He taught it. Uh, Peter didn't just teach it there. Paul says in Romans, don't you know all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Peter said, the passage I talked about before, 1 Peter 3.21, this water of Noah's flood symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not magic water. And what does this mean for us? And what should we be doing? Those are appropriate issues. And we will continue to look at those next week. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the blessing of being able to teach this class. And thank you for my friends who come here each week and and the visitors who have come. I pray that you will will bless us as we study uh, your word in history, your hand in history, the way your church has unfolded. Build us up so that we can build your body up, Lord, by love and respect of each other and by honoring you and your word. 
This is our prayer through Jesus Christ. Amen.